You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist, a hematologist, and most importantly, an LLS volunteer. I'd like to thank all of you so much for joining us on this episode where we will be discussing shared decision-making between patients and the healthcare team for patients in particular who are diagnosed with chronic leukemia. This episode will focus on clinical trials, challenges with shared decision-making, including navigating different medical opinions, including medical opinions from Dr. Google. Today, we're going to be joined by Dr. Jacqueline Barrientos, who is an attending physician in the Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia Research and Treatment Program at the Division of Hematology and Medical Oncology at the Northwell Health Cancer Institute in Lake Success, New York. She's a professor of medicine at the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell. Jackie, thanks for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Jackie, I want to start out with a very basic question, but since this discussion today is going to be about shared decision-making, what does that mean? What is that for you? So shared decision-making is a key component of the patient-physician relationship where it's a process where we discuss with the patients their diagnosis and the treatment and care plans and how they might be affected based on the decisions that we come into conclusion, both by participating actively on the discussion. We offer, this is the diagnosis, this is our care plan, and the patient has the opportunity to make a decision on whether or not what is best for them. And I think it helps back to the patients learning about their health, how they can optimize their outcomes, Patients get to understand the pros and cons of every potential intervention that we recommend. The patients are better prepared to talk about their questions. They might not have the question today, but I tell them, write down everything that you might have a question on and then bring it back the next visit and then we'll discuss. And so usually my patients come with a list of like 20 questions, which is good. I encourage it. I want them to be knowledgeable. And when you do these, patients are more likely to follow through with any of the recommendations once you start therapy. Like for example, there are some drugs that we use for the management of CLL that require daily continuous dosing or twice a daily continuous dosing. And if you know of the importance of the frequency and the compliance with the drug, you are more willing to actually take the drug because over time, you know, maybe the first year it's not an issue, but two years or three years taking the same drug, it gets kind of difficult to continue. And the more you know, the more and better it is for your own health. So I want to just spend a minute saying how relevant and interesting this whole topic is. I've told residents and fellows for many years that I think one of the most interesting discussions is meeting a patient and making the diagnosis of CLL and then oftentimes saying to them, I don't want to do anything about it. (laughs) 
<laughs> and the patient sort of looks at you and say, wait a minute, doctor, you just told me I have leukemia and you don't want to do anything. I mean, what's that all about? Maybe I should go somewhere else. And so I have to say in terms of CLL, what an interesting disease and how important shared decision-making is. So uh, with all that, I'm, I'm really excited about talking about this. What's your perspective on that first visit with patients with CLL? What is the communication like? What do you talk about? And then let's talk about how do you move forward after that? So chronic lymphocytic leukemia is a disease that in the majority of patients in the United States is diagnosed incidentally, meaning they come in to see you for one reason, you go to the doctor, you get your complete blood count, and you notice that there's some lymphocytosis. And then you start to worry, maybe this is an inflammation, infection. But in the back of your head, there's always the concern that maybe there is something else. And so what usually happens is that these patients go to the regular annual medical exams with their internist, and then the doctor notices that there's lymphocytosis. And then the second time around, like three months later, that lymphocytosis is the same or higher, and the patient has no symptoms. And so that's when they get consulted or referred to a hematology doctor. And so that's when we send some more extra testing, including a flow cytometry to determine the origin or the reason for this lymphocytosis to see if it's monoclonal or polyclonal. If it's polyclonal, usually it means that it's just an inflammation or infection. But if it's monoclonal, the majority of the time, it is CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. It's a disease usually of people that are elderly. The typical patient is someone in his 80s and is a male, and it's white. However, because I work at the CLL center, we do see many more patients that are actually younger, much younger, in their 30s, 40s, or 50s. Then you have to go over the diagnosis, which in many cases can be devastating, right? You, nobody wants to hear that they have a leukemia. Yeah. In, it is because of this that scientists and investigators of CLL have identified a precursor of CLL. It's called MBL, monoclonal B-cell lymphocytosis. If you don't have any lymphadenopathy or any splenomegaly and your lymphocyte count doesn't change, you can actually have a diagnosis of MBL. And that is associated with a risk of 1% to 2% of eventually becoming a CLL that requires therapy. Now, a typical CLL patient, on average, there's a rule of threes. One third will not require therapy ever in their lifetime. The other third will require therapy sometime later on. And the other third requires therapy immediately. And most of the time, those are the patients that were having symptoms and went to the doctor to see them. What are these symptoms? Sometimes they have fevers that don't go away. Weight loss that is dramatic, about 10% of their body weight. Night sweats are drenching, wake them up in the middle of the night. So those are the patients that would require therapy immediately. People that don't have any symptoms, you can actually do active surveillance or what we used to call watch and wait. And it's those patients that have the most anxiety. In order for us to identify these patients that do not require therapy immediately and those that are ones that may be at risk for developing the need for chemotherapy or for targeted agent or for any initial therapy, we do prognostic testing and we explain that to the patient. We explain that although you have this condition that may not require therapy right now, there are certain prognostic markers that can tell us how the disease will behave over time. But again, this is all averages and statistics. There are certain prognostic markers that tell us that the patient will behave more aggressively. 
For example, if they have a 17p deletion or an unmutated IGHB, this will correlate with a more aggressive disease and we tell them to do more monitoring every three months and watching their counts and physical exam. Jackie, I want to ask you, let's focus on that group because I think they're so interesting. A patient who's highly educated or certainly reading a lot about their disease. And you say to them, you know, I've looked at the markers, I've looked at your flow cytometry, I've looked at ZAP and all the other prognostic features. And I would advise just sort of watching for now. Tell me a little bit about their experience as you perceive it. How are they hearing that? What are their worries? And how do you take that situation and, again, in a shared kind of setting, make a decision to do watch and wait, for example? So we discuss the data and all the clinical trials that have been done in the past and in recent times, either with chemotherapy or with novel targeted agents. And at this moment, because there's this group of patients that will never require any therapy in their lifetime, it is better for certain people to just don't treat because the therapy itself can have more side effects and toxicities than the disease itself. It's for this reason that we explain the rationale for not doing any interventions, only active surveillance. But we remind them that even though they are not actively requiring therapy, they still are at higher risk for developing secondary malignancies or higher risk for infections. And so it's because of that that even though they might feel excellent and they might not have symptoms of the disease, unfortunately, the condition puts them at higher risk for other potential complications. And so we go over these issues that may affect their quality of life in the sense that they have to be more proactive by getting the flu shot every year, getting vaccinated against COVID, getting the vaccine against pneumonia, and considering the vaccine against shingles, but the recombinant viral, you know, the shingrix. So I want to challenge you a little bit. Patient comes to you, highly educated on, on CLL. You tell them this is not just a monoclonal lymphocytosis, this is CLL. And they say, doctor, I want to be treated. I want the real deal. I want chemotherapy. So what are you going to do for me? So what do you do in that case? Tell us about, again, shared decision-making. So yeah, we do have multiple discussions about this because some people, you know, they know that they have a disease and they want to get rid of it just because everywhere else that you go, they tell you, you should get your mammogram early because you want to detect it early and take it out. You should check your prostate because you can do some intervention. It's a different concept. And I explained to them that a blood disorder can behave different than a solid tumor. And in particular, these chronic diseases, you can have a very indolent course where you will never have symptoms regardless of the diagnosis. And so it's easier for a doctor to actually start you on therapy right away. But knowing that at the end of the day, your survival will be unchanged, I would rather the patient not get any therapy that can cause some toxicity now and wait until they have truly symptoms that I can help them with. If it's only because of a concern of, yes, I have this white blood cell count that is elevated, I would rather wait because all the data points out that there's no improvement in survival over time, and we actually show more toxicity from the agents and higher risk for secondary malignancies. 
because these patients are at risk for secondary malignancies and any drugs that we may offer them could have an activity or an effect in clonal evolution, which means that if they have any other tumor cell or malignant cell in their body, it can actually make it worse. So let's talk about the reverse situation here. So you've had, and I've had over many years, discussions with patients at very early stage and talk to them about watch and wait approach. Let's talk about the other side of this where gradually their white count has risen, they've developed lymphadenopathy. Do patients then have the opposite of saying, well, now, now I don't want to do anything. We've been sort of watching this for a while. So tell us about that situation and again about shared decision making. And by the way, I'm so happy to see your smile because this is, yeah, for me is again, very challenging. So I'm happy to sort of share this situation with you. Yes, it's very hard sometimes because as the natural progression of the disease is that over time, it's possible that your hemoglobin can start to go down. And so you start to have a little bit of fatigue here and there, and then the fatigue gets worse and worse over time. But because it didn't happen from one day to the other, like your hemoglobin was 15 and the next day it was eight, it doesn't happen like that. It happens over a long period of time. So patients actually get used to that tiredness and that fatigue and they don't have any symptoms. And I've had to discuss this with other patients that say, I am okay, I don't want anything, I'm very afraid because they've been dealing with this disease for so long and for so many years that they feel that the disease is actually something that they can live with without realizing how sick they are. Like we can tell because if we check their blood pressure, it might be lower, their heart rate might be up and we know that that's not normal. So sometimes it's not an easy talk and it might take some time to get to that point where the patient accepts therapy. I remember I had this talk with a 90-year-old when her hemoglobin went down to 8. And she said, honestly, I just want to go to hospice. I don't want anything. I don't want any trouble. And it took me four months to eventually get her to agree to try one drug, which was a targeted agent, Ruton Starosin Kinase Inhibitor. I said, I promise if you don't like this within a week, we can stop. And within a week, she said, you have given me vitamins because I feel much more energetic. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's what I've been telling you about. <laughs> so she's now loving life and she's now 93. So, you know, we can always work with a patient in the sense that we can reassure them that even if they don't like the idea of taking the drug, there are other alternatives that can make them feel better. The way that sometimes I do this shared decision making with the patients is I tell them, listen, the drug is supposed to be this dosage. So why don't we try this? Let's start with half a dose or a third of the dose. Right. And then if you tolerate it and you're feeling better, then maybe we can go higher. Yeah. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> you know, another... <laughs> It really is an open discussion because there are some people that for one reason or the other do not want an intervention and you have to accept that that's something that it's their belief. And like everything else in life, it's always a discussion. There's always pros and cons. There's always any intervention that we do has the risks and potential benefits. So we have to 
acknowledge their concerns and take that into consideration. Also, their social circumstances. Are they able to come to the clinic for follow-up? During the COVID pandemic, when we shut down all our clinics, I started patients on oral agents and we had telehealth visits yeah. where we discussed how they were feeling and how things were going. It wasn't the best of circumstances, but cancer doesn't wait even in the middle of a pandemic. Absolutely. So as we're talking about this, and I'm thinking about my own sort of experience as a clinician, let me throw this out, and I want to get your thoughts on this. Obviously, there's the science of medicine, which drugs to use, a Bruton kinase inhibitor, a rituximab, whatever it may be for the best therapy for CLL, which is always changing. But this issue of shared decision-making let me get your sense as a clinician, your enjoyment of the day, your enjoyment of the week and month. What percentage of patient interactions, your satisfaction comes from this kind of interaction? What percent comes from the medical decision making? I think it's the impact that you can do on a patient that, and the gratitude is what gives me the most joy in this process. I remember we participated in all the clinical trials for ibrutinib, idelalizib, all these novel agents at the beginning, and people were scared of participation on a clinical trial. And to this day, they thank me for having had the clinical trials available here so that they could participate and get access to these life-changing drugs. So at that time, I didn't know it was going to work. You know, it was all a gamble. But it worked beautiful. And I think for me, just the patient's gratitude, their trust in me is something that for me is like, there's no words to describe that. And it's a feeling that I think it drives me to keep moving forward and keep being involved in research because I want to offer that to everyone else. I don't want anybody to relapse, you know, like we're so smart that we can come up with a vaccine for an infectious disease that didn't exist. We should continue to do the same for cancer. So that's how I feel. Yeah, I think your point's well taken, and I want to echo it as, and I'm a generalist, I'm not a subspecialist, but I think the satisfaction, the connectiveness, the, honestly, the, it's making decisions with people, sharing on a very um, human level the nature of their disease and the nature of the choices that, that we're facing is incredibly satisfying. So I want to echo what you're saying. Let me ask you about what are some of the challenges in shared decision-making? Patients getting second and third and fourth and fifth opinions. Tell me a little bit about that if you would. Of course. So we do have patients that have seen many other specialists because we are a CLL center of excellence where we do a lot of research in the clinical side and the basic side. And we see patients that want to hear it from different perspectives from different doctors. And overall, most of us have more or less the same approach. We might have different clinical trials, but we all have more or less a very similar treatment approach that is tailored to the patient's comorbidities and clinical characteristics. And so for us, we work with the other doctors, and sometimes if they decide to have us as a backup in the plan of care, we also work with the patients like that. For example, I have some patients that live, I am in Long Island, that live on the other side of the island on another county, 
and they come and I work with a local oncology doctor and I tell them this is how I would manage the patient and then they are appreciative of our input because you know the patients come only to see us once a year and then they get the local care with the local doctor and if there are any complications they have my cell phone and they can reach me to discuss whatever is going on that they might have never seen because of the nature of our center that is a CLL center we do see some rare complications that are not commonly seen in the clinic and that the local doctor might not know how to manage. Yeah, absolutely. Again, a personal question. A patient you've been seeing for a long time says, again, in this realm of the shared decision-making, you know, I've been seeing you for many years. I want to get a second opinion. I want to go to Dana-Farber, Sloan Kettering, wherever it may be, Duke, etc. So what's your experience of that? So when they do that, I tell them who are the people that I would trust, you know, a family member to go see. Because you shouldn't go by the institution, you should go by the person that has the most experience. I had a patient that once said, you know, I'm going to go to Dana-Farber and was going to see somebody else that is not a CLL expert. And I said, for your case, this would be the three people that I would say, go see. So I helped them with that second opinion. Same if they were to move or relocate, I try to guide them on who would be the right person where they are relocating. And I reach out to my colleagues because CLL specialists, we are a small niche and we kind of know each other. So we know where we're going to get help for our patients. Many times, for example, we've had a clinical trial that was not available at their own institutions or the patients lived closer to us. And so some other physicians in the CLL community have reached out to us and said, hey, do you have this clinical trial? And then they tell the patient to come here. And we do the same for our patients that are from other states. Let me ask you about the patient. Occasionally patients come and say, you know, I saw Dr. So-and-so and they recommended such and such. And I saw Dr. So-and-so and they recommended a different drug. And I remember a third doctor. How do you help patients navigate that? So I usually just sit down with them and go over what their concerns are. And I explain why a doctor might have selected a certain regimen over another regimen, because sometimes they just want to hear what the alternatives are. One doctor might say A, the other one might say B, and they might want to have like a right. second opinion to see which one is better out of the two of them. So I just sit down and explain what are the pros and cons for each one. And then I tell them what the literature says and what the data says. But at the end of the day, it's a personal choice and a personal decision from the patient. And I understand it also from a patient's perspective that you want sometimes a lot of medical opinions just to feel that you're doing the best for your own. And we actually encourage it. We, uh, we think that an educated patient can actually impact their life in ways that nobody else can because you really have your best interest at heart. Yeah, very interesting. Let me ask you about the rest of the healthcare team because we all operate in multidisciplinary settings. So the concept of shared decision-making, how does the team participate in that? So we are all a team. So not only the physician, we also have nurse practitioners, physician assistants. We work in close relationship with the pharmacist. So we all are checking our balances together to make sure that our patients do not take medications that may interact with the drugs that we are recommending if they need to. And we also have a social worker that can help our patients with certain things that they may need. For example, they may need a walker or they may need transportation to and from the clinic or they may need help with translation. All these things, we all work as a team 
And I think it's very important to recognize that the successful treatment of a patient will depend on all these interconnected people doing the right job and doing the best for our patients. I have to say our pharmacies here are amazing. They work with the insurance. If the insurance doesn't it's not covering for certain, they go and look for certain grants and certain scholarships that they may apply based on their financial needs. And it's very reassuring for us because I know that my patients can be treated within a reasonable time after I put on the order for, for a certain medication. So we are all interconnected and whatever we do is all for the health of the patient. And so it's, to me, the teamwork, it's what drives us to be excellent in our job. Wonderful to hear, and I totally agree. Let me ask you, I mean, I saw the listeners can't see it, but I saw you were talking about, again, your view and your job satisfaction as an oncologist and the role of shared decision-making meaning a lot to you. But what does it mean to your patients? How does their satisfaction with their health care correlate with this view on uh, shared decision-making? So, I think an informed patient can make better decisions for themselves. I always encourage them to be mindful of what they are reading on the web because the web is a very good tool to access information, but they can also be misguided by misinformation. And there are some websites that may thrive on the angst. So I usually say, you know, it's very good for you to be educated, to be empowered. But when you go to certain websites, these are the ones that I would recommend. And I tell them, you know, it's LLS, uh, Lymphoma Research Foundation, you know, the CLS Society. These are important because they have embedded most of the data that are there are not to gain an advantage over the patient. There are some people that are scared and then they will pay for certain things that haven't been proven. Not only Mm -hmm. in oncology, we see that also with the COVID pandemic that there are some People that decide to sell certain things that nobody knows if they work, but they're being sold at really high prices. So for me, I think when they feel that they know the patients, they actually are more happier. They feel like, yeah, I am taking care of my life. I have this condition, but it's not stopping me. And I think there's a change in that. Remember that question that you asked me, how do people feel when they are told you have a chronic condition? And sometimes for a young patient, that can be devastating. But once you are more knowledgeable of your own condition, you feel like you are the one in control and it's not the cancer that is in control. Yeah, and honestly, how wonderful that connection is. I want to ask you also about late and long-term effects, looking at this, because this is a disease that often is a chronic one. And so it's sort of a two-part question, and the parts are a little bit different. One is just your perspective, is CLL a curable disease? And the second is, in that process of either moving toward cure or moving toward control, what are the topics you, again, share, discuss, make decisions with patients about in terms of late and long-term effects? So as of right now, there's no cure per se, but there have been some data over the years with a regimen that used to be used very widely about a decade ago called FCR, fludarabine cytoxin or ciclophosphamide with rituximab, patients that had six cycles of the drug and then had IGHB mutated disease with no 17P lesion and no 11Q, if they achieved undetectable MRD or minimal residual disease, 10 years later, two-thirds of those patients are still in remission, which is to us the closest thing to a cure. 
Now, yeah, that has yeah. never been done again because with all the novel targeted agents were just approved starting in 2013. So we are working towards that. We have been doing some clinical trials combining the two most potent drugs, ibrutinib and venetoclax, which target two different pathways. And what we're seeing two years after stopping the therapy of 15 months is that 95% of the patients are still in remission. So that's great. The regimen hasn't been approved yet, but we are hoping that maybe if we can get something like that, even if the patients do not relapse, even if you are not cured, if it's a functional cure, that would be great. But we still don't know what the absolutely the longer follow-up will show. More mature data is needed. And so we're working towards that, but we are really not there yet to say we can offer a cure. So again, for the broader majority of patients where it's more of a chronic disease, what are the topics you discuss? What are some of the priorities that you have, especially for younger patients, thinking about the longer perspective of their life? So that's where shared decision-making takes into consideration all the concerns that may happen with survivorship. So for example, a young female or male that is diagnosed in their 30s, they might ask, can I have a baby? Will that baby have my same condition? And so, for example, if the patient has no symptoms, diagnosed with CLL in their 30s, and they want to have a baby, that's not a contraindication to have a baby. Most of the patients will have successful deliveries of normal, healthy babies. But if the patient is taking an active drug and it's in remission, then we discussed, or, or if about to start therapy, we discussed the potential for preserving the potential for having babies. We talk to the male patients and tell them that there's sperm banking. And for females, we do egg harvesting. And we have a team that helps us with that here at our center. The procedure itself is very expensive. It's thousands of dollars, and most of the young patients don't have the money to afford this. But in the process of doing this with my young patients, I've learned that there's also foundations for that. For example, the Live Strong Foundation from Mr. Armstrong, who was a survivor of cancer himself, he will pay and help people so that they can afford these procedures. So we discuss this with the patients in terms of before starting any therapy, just so that they have the option later on of having children. Now, in terms of whether this condition might be hereditary or not, that's something that also needs to be discussed and addressed. The majority of patients will never have any issues with having their kids have CLL. However, because we are in a CLL research and treatment program and we see the rare cases, there is the potential for a higher rate of patients that will have a diagnosis of CLL if they have a family history of CLL. So it's not that they have a gene, but it can run in certain families, like diabetes, for example. Even if your whole family has diabetes, it doesn't mean that you will get diabetes, but you might have a predisposition to later on develop diabetes. So kind of like that. The other thing, it depends on the therapy, right? For example, FCR that I mentioned that people can take a regimen for six months and then 10 years later be fine. You have to take into consideration that a minority of those patients may develop acute myelogenous leukemia or myelodysplastic syndrome. Is that a risk that you are willing to take? And last time I gave this regimen, I discussed that with one of my young patients and he said that he was willing to take it because he didn't want to be taking anything forever. So all of these discussions need to be taking place before you start any therapy. The other big concern sometimes with 
using a Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitor, for example, is the potential that later on you can develop high blood pressure or develop cardiac arrhythmias. And so there are some patients that say, you know, my family member had severe hypertension or had a heart attack. I don't want it. And so you have to take that into consideration. And that's why it's so important to do shared decision making. Would you discuss all these potential things that can happen later on, especially if you're on a drug for a long period of time? So I want to wrap up at this point. I've said this was an incredibly interesting and informative episode. I want to thank Dr. Jackie Marientos, who's an attending physician at the CLL Research and Treatment Program at the Division of Hematology and Medical Oncology at the Northwell Health Cancer Institute in Lake Success, New York. Jackie, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. For a listing of all of our Healthcare Professional Continuing Education Activities podcasts and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. And finally, I want to encourage all of you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. We look forward to you joining us on future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.